and welcome to the podcast. This is On The Dresser, and I'm Vanessa Carlisle. I'm Danny Cruz. On The Dresser is your bi-weekly dose of sex, gender, culture, and politics. We call our special brand of knowledge... Edutitillation. <laughs> this show is led by sex workers, queer people, sex educators. We're talking about sexuality. We're not afraid of it. And we're here to, we're here to help you be not afraid of it. <laughs> Or to celebrate you, if you're also not afraid of it. Uh, This week we're talking about sexuality and law enforcement. We're talking about what happens to our sexual bodies when they come into contact with the police state, with the carceral state. This is a topic that comes up a lot on On the Dresser, in part because we are talking about sex work and the sex industries on this show pretty often. We're coming from the perspective of workers. Uh, We're out of the closet We've been in the industries. We are in the industries currently. It's part of how we do our lives, and we care a lot about workers' rights, sex workers' rights. And so we're talking always from that perspective. Um, We used to be on the air. We were on a radio station in Los Angeles called KPFK, and one of the stated reasons for our show getting pulled from the airwaves was that we were saying things that undermined the law enforcement anti-trafficking agenda. Um, This was a problem, of course, because if you want to get any money from the government or from the Center for Corporate Broadcasting, which KPFK did ultimately want that money, um, you have to be on board with a current trend, which is all anti-trafficking all the time. The problem with this is that most of the anti-trafficking work that's getting done out there is not getting done by people who were in the sex industries. So people who have worked in the sex industries are not getting asked questions about whether they consider themselves a victim or not. And this issue is very prominent in a news story that we're going to cover in just a minute about the New Orleans uh, stripper protests. But all of the issues that we're talking about today have something to do with the way law enforcement involves themselves in people's private lives and the way that law enforcement is involving themselves in people's sexuality. So we are obviously against actual trafficking. We do not want people to be subject to force fraud or coercion. We do not want people to have their money taken from them. We do not want people to be in a situation where they are getting exploited. That is that We're not trying to advocate for that. And we're certainly not trying to say that it doesn't happen because it does happen. But there's a lot of myths about trafficking. There's a lot of panic about trafficking. There's a lot of emotional appeals to people who have no idea what's actually going on in the sex industries. And so we're here to demystify some of that for you from the sex worker rights perspective. And that's why we're a podcast and not a radio show. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with Danny giving you some headlines. Yeah, this week, um, Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley closed the last of seven cases against current or former Oakland police uh, officers that were charged in the scandal involving Celeste Guap. So we've been covering the story of Celeste Guap for almost two years now. Um, There's a lot of information out there about what her case is about, but just quickly, she was a young woman who um, brought down... (laughs) (laughs) I want to say she fucking brought down the rage (laughs) against the Oakland police, Richmond police, San Francisco police when she she alleged that she was getting... um, taken advantage of yeah she was she was getting taken advantage of by police as a as a young sex worker yeah she thought that by having these relationships she would have some sort of protection Um, and then when she found out that this was not the case she she kind of reneged and turned on that and went and went public with her story right they didn't protect her so she didn't protect them um, so this week, um, Terrell Smith, who was uh, the last of seven cops whose case was tried in Alameda County, um, was originally charged with five misdemeanor counts of unauthorized furnishing of a criminal record, uh, meaning he accessed a law enforcement database um, five times between January and April of 2016, and then gave the info to Ms. Glop about her criminal record. 
Um, this week, he pled no contest to just one of those counts. Um, and the judge said that if he doesn't get arrested for anything in the next 18 months, and the, the language used was if he stays clean mm-hmm. for 18 months, the case will be dismissed. So TikTok, because we know cops love trouble. In a press conference in 2016, uh, District Attorney Nancy O'Malley said she had uncovered evidence that Officer Smith had sexual contact with Guap, but those things happened in Contra Costa County, several hundred yards away. Uh, So it was out of her jurisdiction. Um, The Contra Costa County's DA's office obviously didn't see the same evidence that the DA in uh, Alameda County did because they said that they didn't have sufficient evidence to even charge uh, Officer Smith with anything. Smith resigned from Oakland Police Department in May 2017. Uh, Most of the cases, I talked about there being seven, most of the cases fell apart because of insufficient evidence. Celeste Guap also declined to testify in many of those. Officers mainly took plea deals that resulted in probation or even no action at all. Um, A few of the officers have since resigned from the Oakland Police Department. A couple of them still work for the department. And this is just officers in one jurisdiction. In 2016, when when this was being reported heavily, it was said that she was involved with as many as 25 officers from five different police departments. But she's really only, like, settled with Oakland. Yeah. Um, And she's dropped uh, the suits against the other... Uh, many of the other police departments and cities. Um, In fact, in 2017, in May of 2017, after she got the settlement from Oakland, the city of Oakland, she told a crowd of reporters that she just wants to kind of move on with her life and close this uh, this chapter of of her story. This is one of the horrors of dealing with the criminal justice system, right? Is that it's like, it takes forever. And she's just... I don't know. I mean, I understand. I think like I wouldn't I wouldn't want to have to go tell that story over and over again. And especially the way that they treat her because of Mm -hmm. how much slut shaming and how much like just basic maltreatment she's received Mm -hmm. from everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, she got shipped to fucking Florida. Yeah. To try to get rid of her. Like it's traumatic. and, And you're right. I don't I don't. Like, if she wants to not have to tell one story about Mr. Smith in Alameda County and then go to Contra Costa County Court and because they've charged him over there because that's that jurisdiction and run the risk of, like, you know, story fatigue where the stories don't line up and then you, those people get exonerated and appeals filed and it just becomes a process and a process and a process. Like, good on her for taking the settlement and being like... Yeah. More than I ever got from you. She's <laughs> cops hiring me on the regular. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paid her for at least some of her time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? Uh, also this month, um, the Erotic Service Providers Legal and Educational Research Project um, had their uh, case before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, dismissed. Uh, they were heard in front of a three-judge panel Um, in the Ninth Circuit that said that their argument that their speech between their clients is protected um, under uh, constitutional precedent. Um, They were arguing Lawrence v. Texas that um, people's um, private sexual encounters are not the business of the government. And so they were trying to extend that argument to um, relationships between escort and client. Uh, The case got dismissed because they didn't really think that that was an argument but it was only a three-judge panel and they are actually um entitled to a hearing if they petition for it and get jumped through these hoops to present the case in front of the full ninth circuit panel um so currently they're raising money for those efforts esplerp.org is the website e-s-p-l-e-r-p dot o-r-g um both updating people on the case and also um soliciting donations for for the the next procedure there's also some updates on that website about other uh state initiatives and um other uh policy changes that people are advocating for if you're interested in that sort of 
policy side about decriminalization and legalization of prostitution and other, you know, the people associated with sex work, um, SPLURP's website is a good place to go for that information if, if, if you're interested in that. If, if, like most people, you don't like having to read all of the details about uh, how policy works, you can always just turn on the TV and see a bunch of super emotional stuff about January being Human Trafficking Awareness Month. <laughs> or go to In-N-Out. You can also go to In-N-Out and everybody's wearing a button um, for, their, for their cause. Uh, January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and we have all the awareness. We all came out of January really aware of how cute human trafficking victims are, I think. I think that's yeah. what happened. Um, for this, so a few years ago, the Los Angeles County uh, Human Trafficking Task Force um, that's headed up by the LA County Sheriff's Department, the last few years they've been running this operation called Reclaim and Rebuild. Um, it's a three-day sting. Um, it, ta- it targets prostitution and, and solicitation online. They sell it as catching pimps and johns and traffickers. Um, and the, both the numbers and the scope of this operation get bigger and bigger every year. So in 2016, a couple years ago, the number that went out into the press was 198 people arrested. Um, of those, only, uh, only like 30-something were like traffickers, um, and 115 were on solicitation charges. That's all they said. You can deduce from that that a good chunk of those were uh, female sex workers, though the numbers were kind of unclear. Um, and the arrests at that in 2016 were made largely in Los Angeles County. Okay. Uh, jump a year ahead to 2017, the report was 474 including 142 males on solicitation and 36 males on suspicion of pimping. There we started to get a little bit clearer on the numbers. We could say that from the reporting, 296 sex workers were arrested. If you do the math and take the 474 minus Mm -hmm. the 142 males plus the extra 36. But 142 males on solicitation could also refer to uh, male sex workers in the trade and and or trans women who because, are arrested. Because of the way that they things. misgender trans women. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly we're led to believe that these men arrested were uh, Johns because it, it just plays better. Um, and in 2017, that operation went statewide. So we, we saw a larger presence and including, I believe, like the FBI like was involved with that statewide operation. Yeah, these, uh, are, becoming, these are becoming joint operations where, you know, one of the complexities of this, of course, is that prostitution laws are state laws and municipal codes. The federal laws are about trafficking. So when we say 36 males on suspicion of pimping, pimping is like that's going to be a state or a municipal code that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you call them a trafficker, now you're talking about federal. It's Mm -hmm. very confusing and weird. (laughs) It's really confusing. And the way that they write up these uh, reports makes it sound, it's very simple. They write them up to make you feel like we're cleaning up the streets, right? This notion that like, we're cleaning the streets, we're, we're getting the pimps, and we're saving the trafficking victims, and it's all good. And it's like, what, what's actually going on is that sex workers are getting terrorized with greater frequency and by more law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. Well, this year, um, Operation Reclaim and Rebuild had its reach include all of California and Las Vegas. Uh, a total of 510 arrests were made, and L.A. County Sheriff Jim McDonald at a press conference broke the numbers down a little bit better for us. Uh, I can give you the, the breakdown that I have statewide, plus Las Vegas. Uh, 299 commercial sex workers, uh, 178 Johns. 30 pimps, people arrested for pimping, pandering, or supervising, uh, and others for various crimes, uh, 29. Oh, he's using the phrase commercial sex workers. Right. Yeah. What? Yeah. (laughs) That's Uh, so confusing. (laughs) It it was confusing. And and in part of his his statement, during the press conference, he said uh, something like, you know, these are 
because of the internet, prostitution crimes are relatively r- low risk, and people think they can get away with them. <laughs> <laughs> Which they're not talking to the workers face. ever. They're just never <laughs> actually talking to workers. <laughs> Which also just flies in the face of all their hype about it being very high risk and people being at risk when they're in the life is the 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 term they use well and it completely ignores the worker experience of the cops being where the risk is Mm -hmm. right so you know this is like this is the issue with the super bowl myth that we have so much more human trafficking that's happening during the super bowl that we need increased police work and we need need all of our money going into the city where the Super Bowl is so that we can fight all of these traffickers that are coming into town with all of these baby girls that they're shipping in. And it's like, you know what? The few cases where that's actually happening, if they actually went after those cases and and knew who was doing that and were dealing with it in a targeted way, I, I really would complain a lot less. But that's not how it happens. It happens in these enormous wide net stings where they hope to catch hope to catch a couple and mm-hmm. um and we have a lot of research now that shows that no there actually is not an influx of crazy amounts of human trafficking during the super bowl but guess what a bunch of money still going to fight it meanwhile you know sex workers who are independent workers who are just trying to make a living and make things happen are getting swept up and then the few people who are really, really in trouble are not safe when they get arrested. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make um, them safe. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the Super Bowl, number one, go Eagles. Um, <laughs> very super proud of that. Um, second, like with all the hype that um, Minneapolis did and, and trafficking organizations did, um, both online and in the public about their Tackle Demand initiative, a story that was published uh, just in the last day um, by a CBS affiliate in Minneapolis uh, spoke to cops about, they, they asked law enforcement um, about the number of arrests. And, and the headline here is, Super Bowl arrest numbers are lower than expected. So A, there wasn't much going on, but they did, they did work in a, a two sentences about trafficking. It says, quote, sex traffickers were the targets of officers. And then they have this quote from uh, a police officer, John Elder, um, from Minneapolis Police. And he says, quote, we were able to effect a good number of arrests and rescue some people that in fact were being trafficked. Yeah, okay, cool, thanks. Full stop. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> Very reassuring, very them. reassuring. Yeah, they, they, it, it sounded like they were asking, hey, so what about like the trafficking things that you put a lot of time and resources in? And they're like, yeah, we got some people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the same, the same sort of uh, panic, p- human trafficking panic, you know, the way that the words are, are used, like we have an increased, it's an epidemic, it's a, you know, all of the language that's being used. Um, Like some of this is actually just numbers manipulation by law enforcement because once they've decided that someone's a human trafficking case, they can count them differently, you know, and they can count them as a prostitution arrest and as a trafficking case in some places if they want to. So it gets, this is what I mean when I say it gets confusing. It's cacophonous out there because of the ways that the local laws and the federal laws interact the way that the different law enforcement agencies are doing their numbers like they are making things happen for themselves for pr in order to get money that is that's the basic like (laughs) that's the basic point i want to make here like just doing like quick uh research while we're recording and there's a a article on us uh abc affiliate in minneapolis and the headline there is sex trafficking victims back out in the cold after emergency shelter ends post super bowl right so they set up this this uh, long-term residential facility that was specifically for sex trafficking survivors uh, called Breaking Free. They're, the survivors are, are typically required to sign up for like counseling and they can stay there. But for the 10 days before the Super Bowl, Breaking Free was allowed to become an emergency shelter. So they got, they had emergency beds for trafficking victims and then on the 11th day, the day after the Super Bowl, they were told, well, you got to leave now. 
Thanks for the rescue. Thanks for the rescue. Also, it's 9 degrees in Minneapolis right now. We're recording this at on Tuesday the 6th at 1 in the afternoon. Uh, and it's currently 9 degrees. So not only were they kicked out of their emergency shelter beds, uh, but then who knows where they go from there. So on the subject of rescue and aid for human trafficking victims being uh, empty promises that are coming from law enforcement and, and nonprofit groups. Let's talk about what's going on in New Orleans. Okay, so let's say that you are a pretty responsible media consumer. You think you have a lot of critical, you know, a lot of, lot of critical thinking going on. You're, you're, you listen to NPR and you hear this three-minute story about the New Orleans stripper protests. <laughs> First of all, some people prefer dancer. Some people prefer stripper. I'm going to use stripper because I was a stripper and I liked the word stripper. And so I'm using it for myself. And I'm also going to use it uh, for this community because there's a reclamation of that word, I think, that's happening where um, strippers are calling ourselves strippers. Because <laughs> it, feels, it feels good to just be like, yeah, it's what I fucking do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I also want to be clear that for people who have some discomfort with that and prefer the word dancer, I hear you. I'm with it. Uh, write us an email. <laughs> um, okay, so what happened was a large-scale joint uh, anti-trafficking project in New Orleans on Bourbon Street where eight clubs got shut down. And I want to just – Whoa. Yeah. Because and there's new ordinance. They're trying to do some new zoning. They're okay. tr they're trying to phase out the strip clubs so that if a fa if a strip club closes on Bourbon Street, you can't open a new one if there's already a strip club on that block. That's the new zoning that they're trying to do to to phase out the clubs. And um, so a bunch of strippers are out of work. Like lots and lots of dancers have nowhere to work, or they're having to like you know because the other clubs are full already. Mm -hmm. Um. And so they protested. But before we get to the triumphant and amazing sound of a stripper protest, which, which we will because I love them. <laughs> I love them so. And I wish I was there. Um, I do want you to hear this kind of incredible and hilarious moment with the New Orleans Police Department. This is, this is the New Orleans Police Department chief, Michael Harrison. Um, and he's the, uh, and the Louisiana alcohol, tobacco, and firearms um, commissioner is there. They have a joint press conference. So this is, this is the police chief talking right now. We're here to update you on the results to date of a joint operation aimed at addressing human trafficking and the many crimes associated with it. As many of you are aware, in the last two weeks, the NOPD and the ATC, along with state police, served narcotics, served notices of closure to eight businesses in and around the Bourbon Street Corridor. <laughs> I'm sorry. He just had a slip of the tongue where he said, we served narcotics. <laughs> just, I just dig it. I just think it's hilarious because, because the big, you know, one, one of the major pieces of panic that goes on when we're doing anti-trafficking stuff is that you know there's a there's a way in which the war on drugs has been repurposed to be the war on trafficking and conversations about drugs being there being present on the scene or drug crimes being part of the trafficking world like yeah okay if you're dealing with a black market you're dealing with a black market there's going to be drugs on it that's part that's part of what it is right so to someone who you know, who, who's been in these kinds of environments, it's like, no, duh, there's drugs there. Like, I don't even, I don't know. Do I sound drugs like Drugs at a strip club? What do you mean? Wait. I could not imagine. <laughs> like, partying people like to party. I don't know. I, just, I feel, do I sound like I'm from the 90s? I can't help it. I, anyway, the point is uh, that this was a big deal. There were a bunch of strippers who, who were you know, kicked out of their, kicked out of their clubs. Um, and they were treated really badly. Like this is, this is part of what the story is, is that the dancers are speaking out because they were, 
furious, furious at the way that they were treated. Um, they told reporters that the cops would come in there. They were using their legal names in front of customers, which is a way to put dancers in more danger. They were uh, taking pictures of them in their work attire, which is basically like thongs. They were um, touching them. Like the, like the raids were really traumatic. There were dancers who were like crying until they threw up. There were dancers who were clustering in the corners of the rooms. Like they were describing such a horrible scene. Um, and then, you know, the way that the cops report it is like, we're badass. We raided these, you know, dens of iniquity and we and we we arrested the, you know, the traffickers and we and we saved trafficking victims. But then in the end, they had to admit that they didn't actually find evidence of trafficking in a lot of these places. Like they weren't it wasn't a big win for anti-trafficking. They did not find what they were looking for. Um, so I want to do a shout out for to Melissa Jira Grant. She, you know, she re- reported really well on these things. She's getting um, some of her story out there, and she is a main source for me of, like, I know that if I'm reading a Melissa Jira Grant story that she's coming from the sex worker rights perspective. She's, you know, she's trying to tell our story. Um, but she, so one of the things that she reported on was the way that these dancers were, were coming forward with their stories. Um, and so – she says that undercover agents um, were coming in there. They were they were touching the dancers, um, and the ATC suspended eight clubs' alcohol and tobacco licenses. So that that means they had to close. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there were reports of uh, on like Twitter of like sex workers saying like these dancers have to go like a state or two away, right, to find work. Like people are in a panic mode. So there was this incredible protest. Um, the, the strippers took to the streets. They made a bunch of incredible signs. They were, they were chanting. Um, and I just, you know, here's, here's a clip of them chanting. They are saying Bourbon Street, not Sesame Street. (laughs) (laughs) And they're saying, let us dance. Mm -hmm. Let us dance. Like basic shit, man. Like... Um, anyway, I just, it's an incredible, I think it's an incredible story. There's a, um, there's an organization called Bear in New Orleans. It's a stripper organization. Um, and Lynn Archer, this is reported by Melissa Gira Grant. She, Lynn Archer is the, uh, one of the members of Bear. And she says, the raids have led to zero arrests of pimps, zero instances of violence against women other than those perpetrated by their own officers. Bourbon Street workers could offer critical and sensitive information and help to uncover and stop violence if only law enforcement would foster trust by demonstrating that they're capable of treating us with respect. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Fists uh, up for Nola. Fists up for Nola. Absolutely. In a kind of a related thread, I kind of wanted to put out into the world. Um, I hearing the, the, the mistreatment um, of of the, the the dancers by the police department. Um, that's not the first time I've heard a story of a sting or an arrest scenario resulting in like abusive, either abusive language or just abusive treatment. Right. Um, I, I would like to start to be able to tell those stories. So if any of our listeners um, have had this experience of, of being caught up in one of these, um, in any capacity. And if you're uh, willing to sit down with us um, and, and share your story, you don't have to you know, use your name, but, um, you know, email us, get, get in contact with us on the dresser at gmail.com. Um, we want to be able to tell people like how these things play out uh, from your, from your perspective, um, right. from the, the worker perspective, um, because all we hear is, you know, we're great. We're badass. We did this. We're proud of our work. Um, but you don't actually get to hear how shitty uh, they are while they're doing that work. Right. Right. Contact us. Let's, let's get our stories out there. So connected with 
all of this law enforcement treatment of sex workers and and the panic over human trafficking um, is the interview that we have for you today. This interview is with Marco Tepete. Uh, He's currently incarcerated on death row at San Quentin. It's in Northern California, if you don't know. Um, And he's a member of a class action suit that is ongoing right now that's about the conditions in the security housing unit. um, And so I just want to introduce a little bit of this. This interview is... uh, was originally aired on our radio show on Sex Please on KPFK. Um, you're going to hear another voice with us. Her name's Ursula Lindsay. She's an attorney. She was uh, an intern on this case before she graduated from law school. And so she discusses the case with us a little bit. She knows Marco Tepete personally, um, as do I. And so this interview is with Marco about what it's like to have your sexuality Um, and your sex life and your sexual body regulated inside prison. Um, And so in order to understand kind of where he's coming from, I'd like to do a little bit of background on who he is and what the case is. So Marco's case is based on uh, a case that was filed in May 2012. It's called Ashker v. Brown. And it was filed by a coalition of attorneys and organizations, including Siegel and Yee, who are the attorneys on Marco's case, and the Center for Constitutional Rights. Uh, The lawsuit sprang from the hunger strikes that happened in 2013. It was a federal class action suit on behalf of prisoners held in the SHU, the security housing unit, at California State Prison Pelican Bay. And the named plaintiffs in that case had all been held in solitary confinement for a minimum of a decade. Now, just in case you may not know all of this, solitary confinement is a practice that is used in California state prisons on the regular even though, according to the UN, uh, extended solitary confinement is a form of torture. So prolonged solitary confinement is claimed to violate the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. That's one of the claims of this case, right? They're trying to put this case forward by saying prolonged solitary confinement is cruel and unusual punishment. And there's an absence of meaningful review for shoe placement. So you can get put in the shoe kind of arbitrarily. There's not a really good due process um, for getting put in the shoe or for getting released. Before this case, at this 2012 case, people could be placed in the shoe based on a process called gang validation. Um, And validation, like if you were getting validated, it could be so simple. It could be like somebody found a photo in in your cell. It could be based on a tattoo. They didn't have to prove that you were actually involved in gang activity. So again, we see the way that law enforcement goes after, this is respectability politics, right? Like going after people for being in a gang when they don't actually have to prove that they're doing, that they're an active gang member now. Um, It can be very, very small pieces of evidence. That case reached a settlement in 2015, and it it resulted in 2,000 prisoners being freed from isolation and returned to the general population. Wow. So the new suit, the suit that's ongoing, is Lopez v. Brown. And this is the suit that Marco is involved with. And this suit really builds on that first case. It was filed in June 2015 by Siegel and Yee, and it also kind of comes out of these hunger strikes. Um, Marco was a hunger striker, and he wrote to uh, Siegel and Yee about the the conditions that they were living in and why they were striking. Similar claims, violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments, right? Problems with due process, problems with cruel and unusual punishment, and, and a different population. So the prisoners on death row at San Quentin are held in the Adjustment Center. That's the name of the place where they were held. Um... Some facts about death row. There's currently 743 prisoners on death row in California. The average time spent on death row in California is 16 years. They're housed in three units, and the unit that most closely resembles the inhumane solitary confinement conditions of the SHU is the Adjustment Center. All of the death row prisoners that we have in California are at San Quentin. So the AC, the Adjustment Center, housed prisoners for 23 hours a day, one hour, three times a week out in the yard, no human contact, no windows, and the cells were lit 24 hours a day, so you never got darkness in which to sleep. 
Six named plaintiffs representing uh, over 100 prisoners. Marco is one of the six named plaintiffs in the case. Some of the men at the AC at the time had been housed there for up to 26 years. For some, assignment to the AC resulted from just one disciplinary write-up. Um, and, you know, this case was related to that original case that I was talking about in 2012, the Ashker case, which meant that it, it, it was heard by the same judge, Judge Claudia Wilkin. And this is favorable because it ultimately led to, a, to some similar settlement negotiations and conditions. One result of the lawsuit, and, you know, there's still things ongoing, but one result is that all the named plaintiffs have been transferred out of the AC and into one of the other two death row housing units. So one result of this was that I was able to have a face-to-face visit with Marco, whereas before we had to meet, you know, behind the plexiglass. So that was pretty amazing. We got to hug at the beginning and the end of the visit. That's good. Yeah. Anyway, so that's just a little bit of background about the kind of fight that's going on right now. And so Marco took some time to discuss with me the issue of sexuality in prison and what it what it's like to be um, under, you know, behind the walls, having to deal with what happens when you have an STI, what happens when you want to go to the, um, you know, prison doctor and talk about your sexual health. What happens when inmates are trying to be sexual with each other? Um, so here's Marco Tepete. Thank you for being on this call for sex, please. And um, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is uh, Marco Antonio Tepete. I'm killed by the name of Flaco. I'm from uh, Woodland, California. And I'm incarcerated right here in Death Row, San Quentin. My first question is, I, I think this is something that might be um, just, I don't know that people think about it that much, the way that being incarcerated affects your sexuality, but it's, it's part of incarceration that you are not supposed to be sexual, right? Is that, is that true? Yes, that's true. They, they, um, they, they view it as, uh, as it's a privilege when it shouldn't be a privilege. You know, um, you should be able to be sexual because we're human beings and we're entitled to, um, you know, that comfort of another human being to be able to express ourselves in a sexual manner. So you're not allowed to be, you're not allowed to have sexual touch in a visit unless it's a conjugal visit with um, a, a family member, a wife or something. And that and that's only for certain parts of the prison population actually get to have those kinds of visits, right? Uh, yes, that is correct. Um, they, uh, Some people are trying to promote it. Do you mean there's there's workers trying to promote safe sex for prisoners? Uh, yes, they are, and um, they have a little movement going behind the walls that are promoting safe sex amongst prisoners. And not only that, but amongst uh, conjugal visits once they're approved. And are people taking advantage of that? Do you feel like they're like? What's your sense of of um, of how? 
people communicate about their sexual health or are they practicing safe sex? Well, right now they're doing a lot of um, those services. They do meetings, they do amongst each other. So they do that. And then, uh, you know, individually, they, you know, they promote individually on the yard, you know, with other inmates. They let them know about safe sex and um, encouraging them to pass on the word as well and then to promote it to the administration. Because this administration right now is actually handing out condoms to prisoners. So that's another question right there, but why mm-hmm. you do not want to allow others to engage in it. So they'll hand out condoms, but then if any, if if people get found out, they're punished, correct? Yes, that's the, that's the whole thing right there, is that you are <clears throat> passing out these condoms in order to have sex, but then you have it in your, your your rules and regulations that you cannot have sex with, behind these walls unless it's with the conjugal visit. You know, there's people that need to be with another person. You know, they need to have that sexual interaction because we're human. Yeah. So what what happens if some let's say let's say two inmates are in a in a sexual relationship of some kind what what can happen to them what sorts of repercussions are there? Well, well if they're caught, they will be disciplined. The disciplinary action will basically start with you know thirty days, you know, some loss of privileges, your canteen, after your visit. Um, You'll be CTQ'd, which is confined to your quarters, uh, loss of good time credits. You're registered because it's, uh, you know, you're, you're having you know, sexual intercourse and it's a, it's a rules violation. It can, um, it can go on uh, on your record somehow? Yes. It will follow you behind the walls every time you go into committee and be there. And it'll be mentioned that you've been active sexually behind the walls with the other inmate. And then... You know, if it keeps on, to keep on catching you, catching you, then, of course, the, you know, the disciplinary action, you know, increases, and eventually you go to administrative segregation, and you do what's called a, uh, a shoot term. You go to the security housing unit for a term, whatever they want to give you, you know, 30 days, 60, 90, et cetera, it goes on. Yeah. And then they, and then they, they can even go so far as to, Why do you think it's so important to the state to regulate sexuality in this way? change you know now that it's legal now that gay marriage is is legal i wonder if, if they they're gonna have to change i feel like this as it stands that i do not see this current administration permitting prisoners having conjugal visits with uh same sex i only see it through the traditional as they so call it husband and wife right they're still in place. Of course, the homophobia, because you got to look at the individuals that are running this department, these individuals that have us caged up. Right. No, and I think that the stereotype for people who don't have contact with the prison industrial complex or people who only see things in, in, in movies... Your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. The, the stereotype is, of course, that prisoners are raping each other as punishment. Oh, yes, that's a stereotype. Uh, of course, there was, um, there is, there are instances that that occurs, but, you know, that is, like, very rare that happens. Yeah. You know, but, the, like, the stereotype is there in order to paint a negative picture upon the prison population as, 
oh my goodness, these are the most dangerous people behind the walls and over here raping one another and, you know, um, forcing them to be engaging in homosexual activity and so on and so forth. Yeah. That's a stereotype they want there in order to continue to promote their agenda, fear. It's fear-mongering. That was Marco Topetti. He's an incarcerated individual at San Quentin. And uh, we're talking about sex behind the walls tonight. I want to talk about what he said there when when uh, when I asked him. And I, I, I was really curious what he was going to say. Like, why do you think the state wants to control people's sexuality? And his first response was, it keeps the beds full. And I just think that's so important. Like, how does, it, how does telling people they can't fuck keep the beds full? Here's my here's my first you know like what does that mean? Well, I think I think he said it. Um, you know, it, when you're when you're caught, then you you know you, the the you get penalized in some way, and then after so many times you get caught, you, they start adding time. Right. And that's without even judge and jury that they just start adding time. Yeah, and I think this is something that isn't necessarily common knowledge, right? Like people who have contact with the PIC, they have a loved one inside or they've been inside, know this. But if you don't have contact, you don't know that somebody's um, somebody's experience of incarceration does not end with, with just serving their sentence. You can catch more cases inside. You can catch you, – you can actually have – you know, time added. You can have extra punitive things happening to you on the inside based on what's happening on the inside. Mm-hmm. Right. So when he says it keeps the beds full, what he's saying is if you have a regulation about sex, people are going to break it because anytime you put a regulation out about sex, people are going to break it. And that means you have a new way to punish them, a new way to keep them there, a new way to um, to keep the money rolling in because most of these prisons get paid by the bed, right? So um, regulating people's sexuality, even in prison, is for profit. It's just like, pow, 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 pow. Woo. Also, he was talking about conjugal visits. Um, and you know, he was he was careful to say, I just haven't seen it. I haven't seen a same-sex conjugal visit. Well, in 2007, the uh, California Department of Corrections announced it would allow same-sex conjugal visits. Um, the policy was enacted to comply with a 2005 state law requiring state agencies to give the same rights to domestic partners that um, straight couples have. Uh, the new rules allow, though, only for visits by registered married same-sex couples or domestic partners who are not themselves incarcerated. It also limits, um, sorry, the the same-sex marriage or domestic partnership uh, in order to receive the conjugal must have been established before the prisoner was incarcerated. Right. So it can't be a, it can't be a jailhouse marriage. You have, you have to have been married or registered domestic partners before one of the partners gets incarcerated in order to have a same-sex conjugal visit. And I couldn't find any information in a, in, a brief, in a brief search about conjugal visits actually happening. I don't even know if that's, if that's actually happening yet, if there's been people who are brave enough to step up and ask for their conjugal visits, even mm-hmm. if they're entitled to them. Um, but it is, you know, it is legal. People are entitled to their conjugal visits. But the homophobia is so rampant. I mean, the homophobia is so rampant that mm-hmm. that it's not it's not necessarily what Marco is seeing, at least at San Quentin. We have a caller tonight. We'd like to talk with Valerie. Valerie, are you on the line? Yes, I'm here. Hi. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. What's on your mind? I was just curious on what goes on in women's prisons regarding sex. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, we we're talking to... Uh, Marco Topete, and he's at San Quentin, and um, that is an all-male prison. And so the question is, are things different? Are the regulations different? How are people behaving? And um, I can tell you, first off, I don't know nearly as much about what's going on in women's prisons. And one of the reasons is that we don't get as many studies coming out of them. So the social sciences are not studying women's prisons as much as they are studying uh, men who are incarcerated even though women's prisons are growing in population um, a lot faster right now. So um, I'm going to be sketchy here because we don't have as much information. But it's my understanding from talking to um, 
talking to an incarcerated woman, because I've only spoken with one incarcerated woman, and from doing some reading, uh, there's a book called um, Inside This Place, Not Of It, that was very helpful to me in, in understanding a little bit more about what's happening in women's prisons. It's my understanding that um, sex between inmates in a women's prison is actually much more uh tolerated, I don't know if tolerated is the right word, but there's a culture surrounding it that's a little bit more supportive, that the homophobia is not quite as deep, not quite as rampant. Um, I'm not sure about the punishment. I don't actually know if women get punished as hard as the men. Um, But there is a lot of sexual contact among women in women's prisons that is not necessarily punished quite as hard. That's my understanding. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. Yes, ma'am. (laughs) <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, yes. Um, Ursula mentioned earlier that uh, there was an active case. What's going on with that? Oh, well, the good news is that um, most of the people that are were housed in the adjustment center have, have now been moved in response to the litigation, uh, and that includes all six of our named plaintiffs. Um, the only people that are still... In the AC now are people that actually want to be in there or that are being disciplined for more verifiable reasons or that are on administrative indefinite hold. Hopefully all of them will be moved upon settlement, the cases currently in settlement conferences. Oh, great. Great. Thanks for calling, Valerie. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. I'm so glad she asked about that. Like, yeah. what, what the hell is going on? <laughs> what the hell is going on in the women's prisons? You know? You don't know. Hard to get so information. We don't study it. Hard to get information. Um, so let's return to the conversation with Marco. We're just going to wrap up that interview and, and hear the last few things he has to say. Um, I'd like to ask maybe, maybe one, more, one more question about sexual health. Be- oh, yes, of course. Um, well, you know, we have a health system here. And we're allowed to go to the sick hall. We we write our you know our symptoms we have you know and then we're seen by a nurse then we're seen by a doctor. But there is a lot of um, uh, um, embarrassment involved because you have to write down you know what you have. Yeah. Uh, and then you don't, and then you don't want to you know list what, how you got it. And then you have to go in front of a nurse, whether it be a male or a female nurse. And then you have to show, you know, you know your genitals or, you know, your anus, whatever it may be. So that's another part of embarrassment. And I think it, you know, it creates individuals not wanting to go in front of someone, and it creates more, more risk. Yes. The, it, causes, it creates more risk because they they don't want to go and be embarrassed. They don't want to write it down because not only you're in front of a nurse, you're in front of a correction officer. And they sit there right there the whole time. So you have a correction officer seeing you get naked while you're getting examined. And so that's, you know, another part of, you know, shame that they create here. And that leads to more. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. But there is, um, there is a lot of, uh, how do you say, um, information about safe sex. Being, being circulated now. Um, we started this whole condom uh, distributing, but um, prior to that, there was none of that. You would just, you know, you just have to educate yourself. It was about self-education and um, self-help. You know, treat, making sure you're you're practicing the best sex you can and taking care of your, you know, yourself, you know, your sexual hygiene. You know, with what you have, because you don't get to get. The lubricants, you don't get to get any antibiotics that you need. So you are, you are stuck with that. And, you know, the treatment they have here is, it's embarrassing. You know, it's like, okay, you come down with the herpes or general wards, you know, and then they, you know, they, they take you and they examine you and they, of course, they'll treat you. You know, they'll have to remove the general wards or they'll do it with laser or they do it with, um, uh, some type of ointment to put on there, and then of course you come down with herpes to give you the medication for it. 
But uh, it's all a very embarrassing and, de- and humiliating, <coughs> excuse me, humiliating experience for the individual that goes to seek um, treatment. Yeah, sounds like it. Especially if there's a guard there who you may have to see elsewhere. <laughs> yes, of course. You know, and they they do it mostly. <coughs> some of them are there and they're real. Um, you know, neutral, they don't really engage, but then you have some that, you know, get a rise out of it to see you being humiliated like that, to see, you know, you're coming in for medical health, you know, seeking, you know, treatment. So they, they get a rise out of it, you know, they, that, you know, sex is not bad. Your sexuality is not bad. You know, man and woman, uh, woman and woman, man on man, prisoner on prisoner, Prisoner guard, prisoner free staff, it should not be something wrong. It should be something that is just natural. It shouldn't be a crime because it happens out there in society. Why is it a crime behind the walls? And you just were listening to an interview with uh, Marco Topete, who's incarcerated at San Quentin, and he was sharing some information with us about how they handle sexual health at San Quentin. And I was very surprised to find out that there's a guard in the room, that there's there's a corrections officer, a CO, in the room while someone gets their medical treatment. I mean, of, once he said that, of course, it made sense, but I just hadn't imagined mm-hmm. it until he said that. And I and I realized that that's, um, that's an incredible deterrent to getting help. I mean, the fact that having a doctor look at your genitals is a deterrent already for so many people, mm-hmm. I'm trying to imagine the deterrent effect of a CO in the room. And I just, it's its like, I feel like people probably aren't going to get help unless something's really, really serious mm-hmm. at that point. Um, I don't know. I mean, any anything else stand out to you guys? I mean, about? of course, there's stories of nurses being assaulted. And so if that happens even once, then there's a, a large backlash of 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 more uh, rigorous policing within the prison mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah they have the same responses they do out here where you know something happens we automatically have to put more police on it we have to put more, more, more officers on it. Yeah, we've got bandits. We've got police. Put one on. See what happens. Yeah. Maybe it'll help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but one hopeful thing that he said was that there is some sort of uh, a shift happening where there is more education around safe sex. There's more access to condoms and lube. So there, mm-hmm. you know, people are able to get the antibiotics that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, but. It, it you have to really go through yeah you, you have to you have to go through the hoops and um, he also told me that there's sort of a you know I mean there's an underground economy for everything right. in um, behind the walls so there there is an underground economy for the antibiotics that people need to take for STIs mm-hmm. because if you can get it without having to go through the medical system why w- why wouldn't you right. Um, and I think that those are just being able to frame those things as rational choices, you know, like mm-hmm. that you would trade a, a precious commodity of yours or even for, sex or even sex um, for the things that you need to keep yourself safe. Like these are these are rational choices that people are making. What Marco was saying is like. You know, he was just getting started. He was like, we need to have a whole other conversation about this. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he had a lot more he wanted to say, but he really emphasized that the main reason he believes and I believe that there's regulation of the sexual body at all is for profit, foundationally. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can talk about the moral outrage people have. We can talk about homophobia. All those things are totally true, but the thing that undergirds them is the profit motive because if you're punishing people for having sex, then you are able to ensure that they're going to actually stay in the prison. And the more you fill your beds, the more you get your money because that's how the prisons stay in business. So many of the prisons in California are for profit. 
And because they're for profit, they need to have a lot of people in there. So they're actually not motivated to decrease overcrowding. And this is and this is the real crux of of a lot of the prison reform work that's happening right now. The Supreme Court slapped the CDCR years ago, 2009. We've had reports from the UN Special Rapporteur on torture. We've had multiple investigations that have all come back saying California prisons are murderously overcrowded and that there are things going on inside those prisons that are utterly unconstitutional, that are illegal. Um, and they continue to happen in part because the motivation from the inside is money, is to keep the money coming in. So one of the things that we haven't mentioned here is that condemned inmates actually are are not permitted to have conjugal visits at all, whether they're married or not. It's not it's not an option because it's a privilege. It's a privilege. So if you are getting conjugal visits. With your wife, and or your, something, or or something, <laughs> you're making fun of me. Sorry. Making fun of me. I did say wife or something. Um, if you're having conjugal visits with your wife, and then something happens on the yard, or you know, you get caught with some contraband or something, they can actually take away your conjugal visits. Uh, definitely. I'm uh, I'm just talking about the population of inmates, of which there's over 700, that are that are on death row. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if they are married, if they were married before they were convicted. They are not allowed conjugal visits. It's not part of their program. Which is part of the general breaking up of families, damaging families. Who who also is getting punished in that situation, right? The, the wife is also getting punished in that situation. Yeah. Um, I, I think it could constitute uh, cruel and unusual punishment, a violation of the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, cruel and unusual punishment for the person who didn't who didn't even go through a trial. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm married to somebody who goes through a trial, gets found guilty, and gets incarcerated, and I'm not allowed a conjugal visit, how is that not also me getting sentenced? Yeah, some people are still monogamous. Uh. <laughs> some people, some people out there are still monogamous. <laughs> Or just want to have sex with the person that they like having sex with, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's really – I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were some people who could have conjugal visits and some people who couldn't. I knew that they were considered a privilege and something that mm-hmm. you could – you know, something that you could have taken from you. But I didn't know that you could actually be classified in such a way that you can't be in a conjugal visit. Um, so we do have a question from – a caller who would rather not be on the air, and um, it sounds like a comment. It is it, the idea is that it, it's illegal for inmates to touch each other to touch each other beyond handshakes. Um, is that true? Is that not true? Can people can people touch each other? Seems like we lost the call. Dropped it. I think. We, lo- we lost yeah. the call. I mean, I know that it's I know that it's against the rules for inmates to touch each other beyond things like handshakes or you know a, a fist bump or things like that. Mm-hmm. But that they there also is a lot of like giving back rubs and mm-hmm. you know giving neck rubs and there is some affectionate touch that that happens. That's not I'm calling it affectionate. It's also functional massage. Um, you know, but there there are regulations that prevent inmates from touching each other too much, right? I mean, there's regulations against sex. Um, right. And a lot of this depends on how extreme the isolation is, so how prisoners are being classified, um, whether they're in solitary or not. If you're in solitary confinement, you don't have the opportunity to touch other people. And I was joking a little bit before about about deprivation of sex being cruel and unusual, but there are lots of studies that say that people need touch in order to thrive, in order to function, in order to sustain um, healthy mental health. Yeah. Um, and so without without touch, it really is, it really is a situation of, of unconstitutional treatment. And so I've visited Marco when he was in the AC, and he was behind plastic. You know, we couldn't 
We couldn't touch each other. Mm -hmm. And then when he got moved, we got to sit in a cage together. Um, so, you know, we got to hug at the beginning. We can we can put our arms around each other for the photo. And there's all of these small places where you're allowed to touch. Um, at the beginning of a visit, if you're in a if you're in a relationship with the inmate, you're allowed to kiss at the beginning. You know, things like that. Very small, very small moments where you're where you're allowed that touch. Um, and they're just they're like magical, important, deeply felt moments um, that are are also laced with grief because they're brief because they're fleeting and because they're um, completely surveilled you know the entire time you can't you can't you can't touch without someone staring at you and that person is armed basically like mm -hmm. you're not actually allowed to hug someone without another person who has a gun watching you do it you know um, so that's I don't know I'd never experienced anything like that you know, until until I started visiting people who were incarcerated. I'm so grateful um, that Ursula came down tonight to help us kind of tease out the bits of this case and the and the scene that's happening at San Quentin. Thank you for coming. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And for more info, a great place to look is on the website for the Center for Constitutional Rights. The complaint for Lopez v. Brown is public. You can type that into Google and, uh, and, and go from there. Thank you. Danny, how can people find you if they want to be in communication with you? Uh, on the Twitter, at a Danny Boy. <laughs> yes, I am also on the Twitter, Vanessa Carlisle. You can find me on Twitter at vcarlisle. And if you want to ask us more questions, you can. You can email us at onthedresser at gmail.com. We love to hear your comments. We want to hear your ideas for episodes. Mm -hmm. We want to hear your feedback. Send us your questions and we'll try to answer them. Yeah, we are a podcast. So, you know, anybody with a smartphone, you can open up your recording app and ask us a question and maybe that's how we'll feature it. Yeah, you can shoot us a voice memo at onthedresser at gmail.com. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at OnTheDresser. Uh, you can also find past episodes of our show on uh, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and now Google Play. Yay! Yay. And if you do listen to us on any of these platforms, um, we're going to do the thing. We're going to ask you, please rate please rate and review us. Um, we're, we're trying to build in 2018, and it really does help us. Get the word out when you rate and review on iTunes. And share. Yeah. Send us to a friend. Send us to a friend. Uh, our production team is myself, Danny Cruz, Vanessa, excuse me, Dr. Vanessa Carlisle, <laughs> uh, Lauren, and Lauren Kylie. All our music uh, for this episode was produced by Lou Gomez. All right, y'all. All power to the people. All pleasure to the people. Good, good night, night and, and good, good fuck. fuck.